Turn to Romans chapter 16. Right up there. Romans chapter 16. Here we are. We are knocking on, well, I don't want to say heaven's door, but we are knocking on the door to the closure of this book. It's very exciting, isn't it? To come to a conclusion of something and not just sort of fade out, you know, in the ways. But take a look at these verses with me. Beginning in chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the congregation in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Messiah. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the congregations of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the congregation that meets at their home. Greet my dear friends, Apennitus, who was the first convert to Messiah in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Messiah before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Messiah, and my dear friend Tychus. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Messiah. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Trophosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Perses, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Greet Ansecretus and Phlegon and Hermas and Petrobus and Hermas and the brothers with them. Greet Philologus and Julia and Nerus and his sister and Olympus and all the, the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the congregations of Messiah send greetings. And I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Messiah, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush the evil one under your feet. The grace of our Lord Yeshua be with you. First of all, you have to be... Uh, I'm very proud that I could read those names. You know, if that's all, that's, uh, that's an accomplishment, isn't it? But, you know, when we think about it, there are, if I'm not mistaken, something like 22, 23 names that Paul just listed. There will be another 10 or 12 that he will mention who are in Corinth with him from which or from where he is writing this letter. And when we oftentimes think of brilliant intellectual individuals we think that they are not people person you know we always think that if you are someone that is interested in books and in study and intellectual stimulation that you don't really have an interest in other individuals 
But Paul is a very well-rounded individual, isn't he? Not only is he one who wrote one of the most important letters, important documents ever written in the annals of history, but he's also an individual that knew the people to whom he was writing and the people to whom he had ministered. Think about this. He has never been to this congregation before. And yet he's mentioned 24, 23 something individuals that he is sending their greetings. How many individuals do you know that you could send personal greetings like that? Do you know 24 individuals so close that you could greet them like that? And then do you know 24 individuals in another city where you've never been that you can name some 24 individuals? In our day and age with Facebook and the computer and, and all of that, perhaps we can. But remember, in Paul's day, they had none of those things. And so Paul was one who certainly loved the Word. He loved the Lord. He loved to think about its truths. But he also was one who loved people. And he kept in mind what those people had meant to him and to others. Take a look one more time. In one sense, we can read these words almost like an obituary. You know, if you walk through a graveyard and you see what's on the tombstones, here lies whoever, and something is said about them, a faithful husband, a loving father, or something like that. But take a look at what Paul says about some of these individuals. Before we look a little deeper, look at verse 1. He refers to Phoebe as my sister. Notice he refers to her as a servant. Notice he refers to her as one who has been a great help to many people. Look at verse 3. Priscilla and Quilla, my fellow workers in Messiah who risked their lives for me. Look at what he says about Epinetus, who was the first convert to Messiah, my dear friend. Look at Mary who worked very hard for you. Look at in verse 7, he says, They were in Messiah before I was outstanding among the apostles. Now that's a great accolation, isn't it? That among the apostles whom the Lord has chosen to carry his word, they are outstanding among them. And you can go through these. Look what he says in verse 9, My fellow worker, my dear friend, one who is tested and approved, one who is my relative, ones who are in the Lord. These are wonderful things to be saying about individuals. And you want to take inventory and say, what would others say about me? Would they say that I am a hard worker, a fellow worker in the Lord? Would they say one who risked their lives for me? One who is like a mother to me? One who is my sister and so on and so forth. And yet that's how Paul makes reference to these individuals. It's important that we are ones that are developing relationships with others. It's important that we know one another well. It's important that we praise one another and build one another up. It's important that we honor one another for who they are and what they are to us and to our congregation. These are important things that Paul concludes his letter on. From beginning to end, this letter is filled with wonderful truths that uh, Paul is communicating to us. Now take a look at verse 1. First of all, he commends to this congregation at Rome, their sister, Phoebe, a servant. Now what he says to them about greeting her and providing for her is the same thing he had asked for regarding himself in verse 24 of chapter 15. 
that the same needs I have extend them to this woman. Now, in the ancient world, women generally did not travel by themselves through the countrysides of these various nations and areas to a place like Rome. This woman, given the notion that she is not traveling alone, she must have been an individual that was greatly trusted and perhaps pretty wealthy that she could make this trip. She had some alongside of her, some other men, no doubt, that escorted her to Rome. And why was she so important? Think about this. She had in her hands Paul's letter. She had Paul's manuscript in her hands. You had to imagine the angels of heaven must have been surrounding her to make sure that letter got to those believers. And we, to this day, read that letter because she, as a faithful servant, delivered it to the congregation at Rome as Paul had desired her to do. It's also interesting as well that Paul trusted this important document to a woman. Because in the ancient world, of course, women were marginalized. They were treated to some degree as second-class citizens. But as we read through Paul's accolations of these individuals and this particular individual, he trusted her implicitly. And thus this great, important document, perhaps one of the greatest ever written in all of history, is entrusted to this woman to carry over to Rome. And she made it. And we, some 2,000 years later, can read that very same letter because of her faithfulness. Paul chose the right person, no doubt, to get that letter to those at Rome. The second people he mentions is Priscilla and Aquila. Now, these two, husband and wife, they are made reference to in Paul's writings in six other places. Now, the rest of the, those that are mentioned here, they're only mentioned here. But Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in six other contexts. Their story unfolds for us. They are Jewish believers who resided in Rome. But during the reign of Claudius, according to the book of Acts, Claudius at one point expelled the Jews from Rome and Priscilla and Aquila were forced to leave Rome. Where did they go? They went to Corinth, not too far away, and a very wealthy city. When Paul goes on his journeys to plant congregations and to raise funds for the poor in Jerusalem, he makes his way to Corinth. And while in Corinth, he supports himself by working as a tent maker. Aquila, the husband of Priscilla, was a tent maker. And they worked together in Corinth and that's where they met each other. Paul then utilizes their home in order to establish the congregation in Corinth. Now Paul leaves Corinth after a time there establishing the congregation and he sails across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila accompany him to Ephesus. They continue to serve together in that city. Paul mentions that Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for him. We are not told how they did this, but if we think about it, they were in Ephesus. And you will remember that Paul spoke out against the goddess Diana, of, of whom her temple still survives in Corinth. And a riot broke out as Paul began to share the good news. 
Perhaps Priscilla and Aquila, though he does, it's not stated in the book of Acts, were two that came alongside of Paul to protect him from those that were about to kill him. And thus they risked their lives to save Paul. From Ephesus, Paul leaves to go back to Jerusalem. Priscilla and Aquila leave shortly thereafter and make their way back to Rome when the exile from Rome or the expulsion is lifted and Jews can return. When Paul now writes from Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila are back in Rome and he sends them his greetings to them. And no doubt hopes to reconnect with them and perhaps does once he does arrive in Rome as a prisoner. So it's really interesting, isn't it? Fellow workers in Messiah who risked their lives for me, and not only I, but all the congregations of the Gentiles are grateful to them and greet the congregation that meets in their homes. So now we know where the early believers in Rome had met. Again, Priscilla and Aquila opened their home like they did in Corinth, perhaps like they did in Ephesus, and now again in Rome where the congregation was meeting. Notice in verse 5, he mentions a penitus. And this is kind of neat, the first convert to Messiah. And he says, in the province of Asia. Now we know Paul, on his first journey was the one who had planted congregations in Asia as he went up into Iconium and Derby and some of those countries in Asia, Asia Minor today, Turkey. And Paul mentions that now in Rome is the first Gentile in Asia that came to faith. I think that's kind of cool too, don't you? If you think about the individuals that you've shared with and that have come to know the Lord It's kind of difficult to forget that moment when you prayed with someone to invite the Lord into their lives. And here Paul is remembering that individual whom he had a part in leading to faith. And this is very significant for Paul because when Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, he tells them that he had not immersed any of them. He tells them that he had not led many of them to faith. But here in Asia we find that he did. And this first person he led to faith he hasn't forgotten and now is in Rome and he makes reference to him I think that's kind of cool take a look at verse 7 where he mentions Andronicus and Jonius my relatives who have been in prison with me they are outstanding and they were Messiah before me now what does he mean by relatives Some suggest that he simply means fellow Jews that believe in Messiah as his relatives. That's very possible. It's also possible that they were family members of Paul. Uncles or aunts or cousins, who knows, who may have come to faith independent of Paul. But he says that they actually came to faith before him. And we know Paul came to faith very early as the message is being disseminated because he went after the Jewish believers that leave Jerusalem and Israel and had fled because of the persecution to Damascus and Paul went after them to persecute them further. So this is very early 
And Paul says that these individuals were ones who perhaps were his relatives that came to faith before him and thus were of the very earliest believers in Messiah shortly after the resurrection of Messiah. And what he says about them is that they are outstanding among the apostles. The meaning would be that the, ver- the apostles themselves think very highly of these two individuals. And thus, he sends their greeting and acknowledges their significance as well. Look at verse 10. I love this where it speaks about this person, Apelles, who was tested and approved. Evidently went through some great trial and tribulation. Look at verse 10 where he says, Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Now, in the first century in Rome, when the reference was made to a household, it didn't mean a family like we speak of today, father and mother and children. A household was actually a term that was used for a group of slaves. They may have been family relatives, they may have been family members, but they were slaves. In Rome at this time, three quarters of the city of of Rome are slaves. So this was commonplace. And what would happen is, if a wealthy individual, and they would be wealthy who would have numerous slaves, died, their slaves would be passed on to the emperor. And they would serve somehow under the emperor's control and oversight. And thus they were referred to as the household of the owners who owned them but has now passed away. So what Paul is making reference to is these are slaves who were believers who are now finding themselves serving under the emperor himself. And thus some believers had made their way into some very high places in Roman society. And so he tells them to greet this individual and the household that belongs to Aristobulus who had passed away, but now his household, his, his family, who were slaves, are now serving the emperor. What's interesting also about this man, Aristobulus, is that when you go into the catacombs of Rome, where those early believers had uh, hid and worshipped in secret, there are tombs in these catacombs. One set of tombs is named after a woman, Dalmatia. Her name doesn't show up here, but Dalmatia was an important figure in Roman society. And in this section of the Roman catacombs, named after this woman, there is a tomb, the only one that has over it, it's a huge tomb, that says Aristobulus on it. Now, is it the same Aristobulus? We don't know. But if it is... Aristobulus was a slave, but among the believers, he was not seen merely as a slave because the tomb that they had given to him was one that was particularly marked out and his name was inscribed upon the stones, if it's the same individual. 
We do know that in the early believers that were gathered, it didn't matter what your station in society was. You could be a slave, but you may have been called to be the leader of the congregation, one of the pastors or shepherds, and thus you were highly respected and treated as such by the congregation. Even though when you left the congregation's uh, uh, context, you were a slave in society, but among the congregants, that's our pastor. That's our shepherd. And thus, if it is the same individual, he was greatly honored and treated as such as reflected in the tomb that bears his name. Take a look at, uh, at some others here. This is another interesting name. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me also. Now, if you look in the scripture and you turn, you don't have to right now, but in Mark chapter 12, you will find that when Yeshua was carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, that as he was making his way to Golgotha where he would be executed, that he fell and wasn't able to carry the cross any further. A Jewish man named Simon of Cyrene. We know he's Jewish because he came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. He must have been somewhat in a hurry or he had a destination to get to the temple in order to celebrate Passover and have the offering offered for him. And as he made his way through the city streets, the Roman soldiers stopped him. And they said, you, help this man carry his cross. And so here Simon now is carrying the cross of Messiah. Probably somewhere between the picking up of the cross and making it to the hill, he came to find Messiah as Savior. We're not told that, but it's very likely. It's likely because just like the two thieves that were crucified next to Messiah, one of them in his final hours, his final moment says, Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Something transpired at that place. As Yeshua was suffering, something in the midst of that suffering and something by way of his example had impressed that thief that turned him to the Lord. And something by the way Messiah conducted himself on the streets through Jerusalem led Simon of Cyrene to give his life to the Lord. Because in Mark chapter 12 it says, whose sons are Rufus and Alexander. Now you have to ask yourself, why does Mark mention his kids? Why is Rufus mentioned? And remember, Mark writes for the Romans. So it may very well be that the son of Simon, named Rufus, is the Rufus that Paul is acknowledging who now resides in Rome. It's very possible. What's also interesting is that Mark mentions his other son is Alexander. We do have a reference to Alexander that Paul would have been in contact with, if it's the same person, because when, Messiah, when Paul is confronted by the riot in Ephesus, it is a man by the name of Alexander that stands up to protect him, that is named in the book of Acts. So is it possible that Simon of Cyrene's two children, Rufus and Alexander, one mentioned in the book of Acts, the other mentioned here in Paul's letter to the congregants at Rome? It's very possible. And by the way, in the book of Acts, it says that the early believers in Antioch heard the good news 
because of men from Cyrene and Cyprus that brought the message to those in Antioch of Syria. And remember, it's in Antioch of Syria, the congregation there, that sends Paul out on his journey. Is it possible that Alexander and Rufus were there when Paul left? Rufus made his way to Rome at some point, Alexander to Ephesus, and here Paul reconnects with both. It's very possible. We don't know, but it's very interesting, isn't it, to kind of think about these connecting links. And then he mentions his brothers. He mentions, by the way, someone by the name of uh, Greet Herodian, my relative. And he mentions uh, to greet one another with a holy kiss for all the congregations of Messiah send their greetings. So I think it's kind of neat when we think about these individuals, what they meant to Paul, how Paul remembered them, and how they served. You would think that's where Paul would end his letter. But if you look at verse 17, as he thinks about the unity that dwelt among these believers and the love he has for them, he then intersperses a warning. He says in verse 17, I urge you to watch out for those who would disrupt the unity that is in the congregation and put obstacles in your way and teach things that are contrary to what he has taught and what is found in his word. But notice what, what Paul writes. He doesn't tell them, debate them, Till you dot, their I's are dotted and their T's are crossed. Correct them in every way fashionable. Make sure that they are exposed and, you know, and, and all of those kinds of things. All he says is, keep away from them. <laughs> you know, that's probably very good advice. Just keep away from them. And he says, for such people are not serving our Messiah but themselves. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good. I want you to be innocent about what is evil. So when we find such individuals that would disagree with our theological understanding of God's truths as outlined in God's word, we don't have to try to convince individuals to think like us. We don't have to correct every error that dwells among us. All we have to do is leave them alone, is what Paul says. Have nothing to do with them. There was an individual a few Sundays ago who, after one of my messages or whatever, uh, had spoken with me. And I must have said something about healing. I don't know. I'd say a lot of things. And I must have said something about healing because the individual just kept grilling me and grilling me. You mean you don't believe this? You don't believe that can happen? You don't believe... I said, listen, I told you what I believe. You know, I, I explained. And he said, but that means... I said, you know, it's really nice to meet you. I'll talk to you later. And just walked away. Sometimes you just have to leave people alone. You don't have to be rude. And you can begin to talk and, and speak. But all Paul says here is have nothing to do with them. Don't get sucked into these kinds of debates that go nowhere. And don't feel that we have to make sure everyone believes everything like we do. But what we do need to make sure is that we preserve the unity that dwells among us. We want to be unifiers, not disruptors. 
We want to be ones that encourage one another in their service. For number, none of us serves well enough for anyone. But we want to encourage each other in how we are serving. That the blessing of the Lord would rest upon us. And as Paul says, he wants to greet all of these people. None of them are perfect. But all he can think about them are the wonderful things that they have done and how they've contributed to himself and to other believers around him. And then he says in verse 20, because of this problem of divisiveness, he says, the God of peace will soon crush the evil one, Satan, under your feet. And there are three things that strike me about this one verse. So let me just close with them. This idea of connecting God as a God of peace with crushing the evil one. Somehow that just didn't compute when I initially read that. The God of peace will utterly destroy the, the evil one. You know, just, you know, he could have said, we'll bring him to an end or something. But no, Paul uses a very graphic word to crush to pulverize, to utterly destroy. And then I thought of uh, the work by C.S. Lewis, Perilandra, you know, that uh, science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra, and that hideous strength. And Perilandra is the most wonderful book. Lewis thought it was his most favorite book that he had written. And it's basically a restating of the story of Adam and Eve in another imaginary context. And there are two important characters, there are a number of important characters, but two central characters is the good guy whose name is Ransom, who's attempting to keep the woman who is on this uh, planet from falling prey to the evil one whose name is, and it just went out of my mind, but uh, Weston. And so Weston is the satanic figure. And as they make themselves known on this planet and speaking with this woman. They're both trying to reason with her. Why? And the story is about she is located on a land mass that is sort of like water. So it's like a wave. And the land mass continues to float, as it were. And off in the distance, they can see some land that is stationary, that doesn't move. And the creator of this planet and of her and her husband, her husband is off somewhere, but her and her husband, they were commanded not to leave the floating land mass that is, you know, like a wave that keeps moving and go to the stationary land. You cannot go to the stationary land, stay on the floating land. And so Weston wants to convince her, why can't you leave the floating land? Have you ever seen this God? Do you know who he is? Has he ever ex expressed himself to you? Do you know much about him? Maybe he's just keeping you from enjoying some good things. And he's trying to convince her to leave. Much like Satan was convincing Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Ransom is there reasoning with her, saying, no, 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 and responding to all of these questions. And the story goes on like this for a rather lengthy period of time until finally Ransom comes to the conclusion that the only way to defeat Weston and to save this woman from utter despair and destruction is he's going to have to kill him. That reasoning is not enough. Because he is pretty smart, pretty wise, pretty deceptive. And what happens at, toward the end of the book is it becomes a physical confrontation in which Ransom has to attempt to keep 
Weston from getting to the woman in order to cause her to leave or to convince her to leave the island. Reading that made me think that sometimes evil can, cannot be reasoned with and that ultimately it has to be put down physically and has to be dealt with tangibly. Paul seems to revealing that as well. Our God is a God of peace, but sometimes evil cannot be dealt with through words. And ultimately, the evil one will be consigned and will be chained for a thousand years, after which he will be let loose for a short time and then thrown into the lake that burns forever and ever. At some point, there is a need to physically, tangibly, really, and not just verbally hold the evil one down. And so Paul says, our God is a God of peace, but there will come a time when the evil one will be crushed and brought to an end. Second thing he says that strikes me is he says that the, the God will crush him under your feet. Well, this is certainly an allusion back to Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news, in which we are told that the serpent will wound his heel, but the seed of a woman will crush. There's the word again, right? Will crush his head. But it doesn't say our heel will crush his head. It says Messiah's heel will crush the evil one. But Paul says here, soon God is going to crush him under your feet. And I can't help but think that what Paul is thinking about is our union with Messiah. And thus, his victory is our victory. Even as his death, Paul has said in Romans, is our death. We died with him on the cross. And thus, we are to live in newness of life. We live with him. We've been raised with him. We will reign with him. And the evil one will be crushed under his slash our feet. Because what Messiah is, is what he has provided for us. And there's a sense in which we join with him in all of those things as those who are the redeemed of the Lord. And then this last thing that strikes me about this passage is not only will the God of peace crush the evil one, not only will he be crushed under Messiah's feet, but our feet, he says, but he says will soon crush the evil one. Well, it's been 2,000 years, you know, we might say it's not soon enough, you know. But soon might mean very shortly, and if it does mean it that way, well, time is very different in God's mind than in ours. And when it does occur, we'll say, isn't it wonderful that it is now complete, you know, and no longer do we have the tempter to deal with or sin to have to combat. But it might also mean that when it occurs, it will occur swiftly. And thus, it will not be something dragged out. But his demise will be quick and it will be brought to an end. This is a fascinating passage as Paul concludes this letter to us. And thus he says, the grace of our Lord Messiah be with you. And where God's grace dwells, 
We can love one another, greet one another, appreciate one another, and celebrate what each other does by the power of God in service to one another in service to the body. Where the grace of God dwells, we know eventually one day all evil will be vanquished and will be utterly delivered from its hold that it oftentimes has upon us. We're experiencing some of that now. You know, we have been delivered by God's grace of redemption. We are being delivered by his work of his spirit in our lives. And ultimately, we will be completely delivered when we are with him forever. And thus, it's the grace of God that makes that all possible for us. So the joy is that we need only turn our hearts to him. And we will experience the fullness of his grace toward us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. We are thankful for these individuals who have served you and others faithfully. And no doubt because of their service, we are benefited even now in our own time and place. Certainly Phoebe, who had carried the letter faithfully to the congregation at Rome, we are indebted to. For we still read that letter of Paul because of her faithfulness. And so we are thankful for those that have preceded us and have laid a foundation upon which we stand. A foundation that is established on Messiah who is the rock upon whom we all ultimately stand. But Father, I pray for our congregation and for each one here May, be, may we be like Paul, students of your word, but also concerned, compassionate, loving individuals of one another. May you help us to develop relationships like Paul had in his day. And may we celebrate all the good things that each one does in your name. And then, Father, we pray that indeed, as Paul says, that you might quickly crush the evil one and bring to an end the challenges that we face because of the disruption and distortions that he brings. May we be faithful to your word and may we be responsive to it that you would be given all praise, honor, and glory. For it's in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.